All right, well, you should have some paperwork for we are needy, or excuse me, needed, part three. We'll begin on page 24 in just a moment. A couple of announcements I want everybody to hear. The first one is for our men. We need guys, some of you, to hang around just briefly after we conclude at noon, if you can, because we're going to be moving some items over in our east wing. The east wing has been approved by the city to open that and make use of some of the rooms in there. And so we're going to expand some of our children's ministries into there. But we need to move some stuff around. So we need your help with that, guys. Uh, It shouldn't take long at all. But if at 1210, you could go over to the east wing doors. That's at the southwest corner of the building. And Sharon Martin will meet you there. And she knows what stuff needs to be moved. So she'll give you instructions on that. So that's right after we finish here. And then also, I had sent an email out, if you're on our email list, about some clothes for a young woman in her late 20s who's in need of some some clothing. And so you have to have, if you have clothing that fits in that style for a young person, and also her size, which is very small, size 3, uh, for pants, medium for a shirt, six and a half for shoes. But if you forgot about that and didn't bring your stuff in today, then let me know. Send me an email this afternoon and let me know you're planning to do that so I can let the family who's in need know that there'll be some more stuff. We didn't get very much. That's why I'm, I'm uh, mentioning it to you. But I also know that that's a niche for who has clothes in that age group and also those sizes. So that just may be the way it is. But if you're planning on doing that, let me know today so I can inform the, the family about that. Our upcoming schedule is we will conclude this series side by side today. Next Sunday during this hour, we will have Nathan Gearhart, who's our missionary to, one of our missionaries to China. He's going to come and give us a report on his work there. Two weeks from today, we're going to launch Stephen Ministry. Uh, we've told you about that, uh, in a few times over the last several months. So you should have some ideas to what that is. But if you don't, you'll be informed two weeks from today during this hour. And we're going to commission the folks who have been training uh, to be involved in Stephen ministry on that day. And then in June, for the four Sundays in June, we will have our new comers orientation and our new members class. If you're a newcomer, you've never taken one of our new uh, comers classes to give you information about our church, then I really encourage you to be a part of that. That's a class that I lead during those four weeks during this hour, and it'll be in a room right out the, that door and across the hallway. Uh, that'll be starting June the 5th, and along with that, those of you that have joined the church since our last new members class, you'll get an invitation to attend the uh, next new members class during June. The rest of you will be in here, and uh, we have uh, uh, some of our guys uh, filling in while I do the uh, newcomers orientation. Then in July, first Sunday in July, Dr. Combs is going to start a series on the holiness movement called the Holiness Movement, the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. It's going to give a history but also doctrinal uh, survey of various views of how one grows in Christ, uh, the doctrine of sanctification. And uh, that may not sound exciting to you, but it uh, actually is 
I think going to be enlightening for you because we've been affected by some of those streams in church history and some of those belief systems in ways you may not you may not realize it shows up in some of our songs and some of our practices so uh, i think you'll uh, have some eye-opening moments uh, when you take that class and then after that series is completed i'm going to spend the balance of the summer uh, however number of weeks uh, many weeks we have to look at a biblical analysis of current events things that are going on from a, a biblical a perspective. And then on 9-11, 9-11 falls on a Sunday this year, we'll start a parenting class in here. And those of you who don't care about parenting for whatever reason, you don't have kids, you don't care about your kids, uh, whatever whatever the case may be, <laughs> then we'll have a, a separate class for, for you. And you don't have to tell us why you're taking the separate class. You don't have to say, I don't care about my kids. But uh, parenting starts on 9-11. All right. We've been in this series, upper right-hand corner says side-by-side, and it is about our relationships with one another and the fact that we are needy and needed, uh, both. And I've made the point that we are made, we were made by God for relationship, and we need one another in relationship just by virtue of being creatures because we are limited uh, as as the created, as creatures, but we also, in particular, need help as sinners. So we would have need help, help from each other, and we would have helped each other in our limitations, even if sin had not entered God's world. But with the entrance of sin, we need spiritual help as well as uh, physical and limitation help. So relationship, given the entrance of sin and the need for us to be restored to God and made into the image of Christ, Relationship is for discipleship. Our relationships are for the purpose of us helping one another become more like Jesus. We are both the needy and we are needed by our brothers and sisters. And we've looked at how to enter another person's life through small talk that then can move to to deeper conversations. And then at the top of page 24... We're going to see that everybody has a story and we want to enter into that story and learn that story so that we can know the person better in order to help them. Last week, we were reminded that everybody is a composite of two natures, all of us. We have we are who we are by human nature, made in the image of God, and then we are who we are also affected by sin nature. So there's who we are as human beings made in the end image of God, but there's who we are tainted by sin. And the Bible teaches that every part of us is tainted by sin, our thinking, our our choosing and our feeling, our mind, our will and our emotion. So with that, we need to because you've got both, you've got the good and the bad and the ugly in each of us, then we need to intentionally focus upon the good things about someone even in the midst of their sin problems. And that can be very hard to do, depending on the person, depending on how long they've been involved in the sin, depending on whether or not they are open to moving in a new direction. If none of that's true for an individual, then it can be very hard for us to see the good in that person. So we have we emphasized last week, and I'm emphasizing again, 
We need to learn in our relationships with each other to enjoy the good by intentionally seeing the good. And if you have people in the category I just described, seeing the good means you really got to look for it. But you can find that in uh, just about anyone. In fact, I haven't found an exception to that. You can always find good to encourage the person with, good signs of uh, their humanity and their ability and maybe even spiritual growth to comment on and encourage them, them with. So page 24, we are needed, part three. Everybody has a story. Once you've seen good things in someone, you'll want to walk with that person side by side. The greetings and conversations that we've considered so far could be done in five minutes or less after a church service, a baseball game, or bumping into someone at a store. The privilege of going further into each other's lives is going to take more time. That time could come from accumulating minutes before and after services in which you're gradually moving a conversation to deeper matters or... It could come by extended times over coffee or a small group. Short conversations become longer ones. Longer ones require new skills. And if we're to help others, we need to grow in these skills. So we remind you here in this paragraph, the Christian life is about growth. So when you read that, that I need, we need to grow in these skills, you may say, I'm an old dog, no new tricks for me. But the Christian life is about, about growth. And if this is, if relationship is for discipleship and us collectively helping each other to become like Jesus is what we're called to do, then we need to take these skills seriously and acquire them and, and improve them. Everything is in motion, drawn along by our knowledge of Jesus Christ and the Spirit's power. Conversations and relationships move forward too. They grow, they deepen, they become more loving, encouraging, and helpful. One privilege of growing of a growing friendship is to hear our friend's story. Scripture itself is the story of God, and we know him through that story. So it's no surprise that we learn about others through their stories. All right. But if you're not careful, you will short-circuit the process of getting to know someone and being able to enter their story by drawing conclusions about them before you know what's going on with them. So I'm warning you about that. Do not judge someone's actions until you have revelation. All right, so let me... What do I mean by that? I don't mean God's going to speak to you. But until you have information that exposes to you, that informs you why it is the person is the way they are, until you've taken the time to do that, be careful about drawing hard and fast conclusions about them. You know, the criminal justice system says that some of the most unreliable testimony that you can have in a courtroom is eyewitness testimony. So this is what I saw can become very jumbled. And what I saw always has to be interpreted. So I saw you... Not shake hands with so-and-so. I saw it. You didn't shake hands with him. Okay, what do you conclude from that? Well, you know, you owe them an apology. You must be ticked at them. Now notice, all, all of that's interpretive, isn't it? The truth of the matter is you don't know why the action or omission happened. You don't know that. But we're very quick 
to draw a conclusion, make an interpretation based upon action without information. And if you do that with someone, then you can very easily put that person in a category and you don't know their story. You don't know what's going on. I sometimes listen to something on national public radio. You know, there's just hardly anything to listen to, okay? And uh, and, and you, you know that if, if you're down to national public radio. And they've got a program called the Moth Radio Hour. I don't know if anybody's familiar with that, but... And this will be people telling stories. And they are to tell their stories succinctly, uh, but but in an interesting fashion. And so these are folks who have entered their story and been chosen to, to tell it. And just all sorts of stories about anything. And yesterday, uh, there was a gal on who was telling her story about her experience as a flight attendant. And... She was talking about how geeked she was to become a flight attendant for the particular airline for which she worked. I I can't remember which one it was. I don't know if she even said. But she said that uh, in her training, she just came out of that just fired up. I mean, they had the CEO of the company come and tell these new flight attendants, this is what your purpose is that we are going to give people something that they don't get on a regular basis. We're going to give people a piece of humanity to them when they get on one of our flights. This is a, this is a new, this is language you use, this is a human experiment that we're doing. And you can't do everything for people that come on these flights, but you can do a couple of things all the time. You can smile and you can be kind. Every time somebody comes on, you don't know what's going on with them. You smile and you be kind. And she just has bought it all, man. I'm going to be a flight attendant. I can't. I'm going to change the world by flying people around, smiling and being kind. And then she goes on to tell the story and she says, you know, I was geeked about that. And that went on for, you know, several months. And then I discovered people are really horrible. And people that fly are really jerks. And she goes on to talk about, you know, how, how horrible they are. And, you know, finally you just get jaded at these people who are getting on these flights and just treating you this way. We used to, when I first started working there, she said with, uh, you know, people's garbage, we used to say, do you have any trash? But then we were told we don't call it trash anymore. We call it service items. So... And she says part of the reason that they changed it from trash to service items is because the attitude of the flight attendants had so degenerated that sometimes they would say things like, as they would go with the bag, Sir, you're trash. Okay. Or, your whole family's trash. And the flight attendants would get a kick out of that. So now they say, now they say service items. But she found that people are, are horrible. And she gave some examples. But one was a guy was having a heart attack on the, on the plane. And, you know, they had the defibrillator you know, on the guy with the paddles. And they're trying to help him. And as she's doing that, she's got this tug at her a uniform. And she ignores it because she's got more important things to do. And then she's got this tug again. And finally, after about three times, she thinks maybe this person knows something. Maybe they can help. And so it says, you know, what? What do you need? 
And uh, the, the person, this gal says, uh, this, this hot coffee is horrible. So she's worried about her cup of coffee while they're trying to help a guy uh, revive from a heart attack. So she had all kinds of these horror stories about horrible people. But uh, she tells a story about a guy getting on the plane, carrying a trash bag. That's his luggage, his carry-on, is his trash bag. And immediately, okay, the trash bag, really? Okay, for 1995, you can get something to carry it in. But the trash bag, and people do this sometimes, and so he gets in, he gets the overhead, and he takes his trash bag, and he puts it in there, and he, and he sits down. And she's of a mind to say something to him, but she remembers to smile and be kind, and she doesn't. And then as the, the flight goes on, at one point, this guy with the trash bag in the overhead bin gets up during the have your seat belts fastened time, and the flight attendants hate that too. And he's standing by the, you know, the restroom, and she does say, hey, you know, the pilot has, and he goes, yeah, but I can't wait. And he just sort of blows her off. And she can give orders. She can say, sit down. And by the way, you know, if you don't follow those, you can be arrested. You, you can be. Those are, um, just as an aside, that almost happened to me. I've told you this story before. <laughs> this is just an aside. But when the girls were about three and four, uh, no, they're three years apart. <laughs> they were four and one. They were like one and four. Yeah. The girls are like one and four, and we need to fly down to Florida for a funeral. And we had to do it on short notice, so we're on Spirit Airlines. Need I say more? <laughs> so we're on, we're on Spirit Airlines, and you got two little ones. And if you've ever flown with a little one, it's just really hard. we got two little ones. And Kim has just done a great job of getting all this stuff together and getting music for them and books and you know stuffed animals and getting us all settled in. And we get settled in, and 45 minutes past takeoff time goes by, and we're not going anywhere. And then an hour goes by, and finally they come on, and they say, hey, we're having a little uh, mechanical difficulty, but we should be going you know, soon. And then another 20 minutes goes by, and two guys with utility belts go down the middle aisle. They're going in the back, and then the pilot comes on and says, we have a little bit of smoke in the back of the plane. So it's been like an hour and a half, and then they finally say, we're going to have to deplane. So you've got to get off. It means you get all your stuff, the stuffed animals, the books, you know, the whole bit. We go out. Three hours later, they get another another plane. Well, now everybody's nerves are frayed. Everybody's mad. But we get settled in. The girls got the music. They got the, the stuff going. But while I was in the terminal, I got a tall cup of coffee. And I was about halfway through with it. And I brought it back on the plane. And as we were sitting there getting ready to go, I finished my cup of coffee. And I'm on the aisle. And there's this flight attendant behind me barking at some some passengers. They're going back and forth. But I don't know what they're going back and forth about. I don't really care. I just got this cup I just want to give her. It's an empty cup. So I'm just waiting. I'm looking like this. And then she gets done, and I just put my cup out. And she just walks right into my hand. And so I kind of look at the cup, and I go, is it possible she didn't see that? I don't know. But I take the cup, and I put it next to my, my chair in the aisle. And she goes up front, and she wheels around. I'm in aisle 11. This is how I remember. <laughs> she wheels around, and she looks at me with, like, flames coming out of her eyes. And she gets on the horn and says, quote, The guy in aisle 11 better pick up his cup, or we're not taking off. 
Now, my wife can verify all this for you. And there I'm sitting as a pastor with my sin nature rising, <laughs> thinking to myself, the devil will be pushing a snowblower before I pick up that, before that, that cup. <laughs> with my girls singing, Jesus loves me. <laughs> And my dear wife going, Kenny, pick up the cup. Pick up the cup. And it seemed like an eternity that I'm just staring at this gal and she's staring at me. And then a flight attendant from the back comes up and diffuses the situation by picking up the cup. So whether I would have been arrested through that, I don't know. But just to end the story, we get to Florida. We get there very late. We were supposed to be picked up by friends, but now it's so late, we just told them we're going to get a hotel. We get a hotel. The girls got to get to bed. And I want to complain. I want to complain about, you know, this gal. And the and so I call their 800 number, and they say, we don't take complaints over the phone. So this adds insult. You now have to put it in writing. Okay, I'm at a hotel because you guys made me late, and you want me to put it in writing. She says, yeah, but that's because we want to make we sure... We get your story accurately. I said, you know, when I made this call, when I was on hold, I was told that this call might be recorded. How about that? Okay. But anyway, nothing doing. you got to write. When I got back home, I wrote. And about a month later, I get a letter from Spirit apologizing and saying, here's $25 towards Spirit airfare. Okay. That's your consolation. More Spirit airfare. Okay. Anyway, so you can get arrested if you don't do this. And she was going to say to the guy, look, sit down. But she remembered, be kind and smile. He's standing there waiting. And she decides, I'll I'll talk to him. And she says, so uh, why are you leaving New York? Now, this was the end of September of 2001. And he says, well, uh, my son was a first responder at the World Trade Center. And that bag is his uniform. And that's all we have. So that bag he brought in and put in that overhead compartment had his son's uniform in it. And his son had perished in 9-11 in the World Trade Center. Now, all she saw was another, another patron getting on, being flippant, not caring about anything, just throwing his bag in the overhead, getting up when the... Pilot says you shouldn't get up, all of that. And now she hears this guy's story. And it's a different perspective uh, completely. So don't prejudge someone's story until you know the deal. All right, back to page 24. Middle of page 24. We like to tell our story and we love to hear other people's stories. We've already been hearing short stories as we've gone through this material. What did the doctor say? Tell me about what happened at work. How was your vacation? How was your time with your sister? How did you end up in this area? And the more important the story is to the person telling it, the more details you want to listen for. Listening to the long stories might require something more than just meeting at church. might require a meal. How did you become a follower of Jesus? The longer version, please. And here's an example of that. A caring couple had a woman to their home for dinner who had been coming to their church but had remained on the periphery. 
She was quiet, almost shy, but could become testy in a moment. They asked if she would tell her story. Specifically, they wanted to know how she came to know and follow Jesus. The story began innocently enough. She traveled in her mid-twenties as if searching for something. Eventually, the words of a street preacher rang true, and she came to Jesus with her burdens and followed him. She knew her life had changed. The preacher then urged her to move in with him in order to be properly discipled. The mentoring, however, meant that she was enslaved by him for the next eight months, only to escape to a different part of the country when he started getting clumsy in his control. She had been hiding the story for the last 10 years, and telling it to us was her coming out. The couple felt blessed that she would entrust them with such a story. The reason for her distance from others was suddenly clear, and they immediately made the connection that her anger came out only when spiritual leaders from the church, though well-intended, reminded her of an earlier time. As a result of her opening up, that couple and others that she eventually shared her story with were able to include her with more wisdom and patience and love. So, you know, withholding the conclusion until you get to know You know, here's a person that you could easily say when you saw them at church, what's their problem until you know the story. She was blessed as she became known and was brought into community. Others were blessed to know her and be brought into her life. Stories about how someone came to know Jesus are the best, yet there are other stories that are also important. How did you get into this kind of work? Tell me about the family you were raised in. How did you meet your spouse? What have you learned in marriage? doesn't get much better than hearing somebody's story, knowing and being known, openness, a growing friendship. And as we grow in these things, we should expect this general rule. The better you know other people, the more you enjoy and appreciate them. That is, the more you love them. And the more you love them, the more you'll be invited into their lives during hardships. So here are some suggestions as you enter somebody else's story. We gradually accumulate a list of do's and don'ts. This is a a don't. Your friend says, you won't believe what happened to me the other day. I was cleaning out a gutter. I put my hand right into a bee's nest. I was stung five times on one hand and once in the face. The neighbors thought I was going crazy when they heard me. And then you say, that's amazing. You know, I hate bees. I get stung every spring or fall, no matter what. Last fall, we had these really small bees in our grass that stung me every time I went by. I must have been stung ten times. I thought I was going to end up in the hospital. So you're pretty much blown off what they... (laughs) what they said about them, and you've immediately segued into into you, right? Uh, I've seen this happen. I've had this happen a number of times over the years. A few years ago, uh, I was at one of Annie's basketball games, and I introduced uh, two parents to each other that I'd come to know because they were both police officers. One's a retired police officer. The other one's a current police officer. And so I introduced them. And I said to the one guy, uh, you know, so-and-so is a a retired police officer. And then the retired guy says, you know, I worked at such-and-such department for so many years. And then the other guy goes, yeah, that was it. (laughs) And then he started talking about himself. So he didn't have any interest in where this guy worked or anything that happened to him. He immediately turned the spotlight on himself. Um, Kim found a place for us when the girls were young. In fact, going before the girls were born, that you found uh, in Lowell, the bed and breakfast? Aunt Lainey was one? Okay, when Lainey was one, she finds this bed and breakfast. 
We used to take our nephews there along with then Laney as a baby and later Annie. But she found this place in Lowell, Michigan near Grand Rapids. And um, we, uh, we loved this place because the people who ran it were just very down-to-earth people. And the gal who ran it, Artie was her name, she remembered everything about you the next time you came. And she had this knack for when you got there, welcoming you and making a big deal about you and sitting in the parlor after you got your luggage to your room and just chatting. But she knew just how long to chat. She didn't chat too long because you got your family there and, and all of that. And it was just it was just a great experience. We did it a number of times over the years. And then somebody else bought it. And we went, and not only did we go, but we went with some friends from our, our parent church, two other couples we took with us. And we're sitting in the parlor the first night we're there, and the new owner, this lady, comes, and she starts chatting with us, and we're used to what Artie used to do. Artie knew when to get lost. But this gal didn't. And she goes on for like an hour and 15 minutes about her. And we've got these friends that we want to talk to, and I keep trying to interject, you know, something to kind of say, well, hey, great to meet you, (laughs) you know, or something, but I'm not able to successfully do it. And I was able to resist the temptation. So this is sanctification kicking in to, after about an hour, say, well, hey, enough about us. Tell us about you. But it did cross my mind, okay? <laughs> but you ever seen you ever seen people who do that? The conversation is all about about them. And if we're not careful, we do that. So when we talk to people, we want to focus on we want to focus on them, not just segue to what's really important, namely us. And let me add, this is not in your notes. But when you are speaking with someone, give them your attention for that period of time. And if for whatever reason you can't, and there are certainly times, and many of you have experienced it here with me, where I can't right now. But I'll tell you that. Either follow me as I walk this way or something like that. So either give the person your attention or tell them, hey, can we, I got to do something, can we talk later or something like that. All right, back to page 25. Many conversations consist of one telling a personal story and the other matching that story. Now, that isn't wrong. It wasn't wrong for this person to talk about their bee experience. We do want to know and be known, and swapping shared experiences is one way to do it. But we don't want to communicate, okay, enough about you, let's talk about me. Instead, we want to draw out one another. So what happened next? Otherwise, your friend will feel that you really didn't hear her story and may be reluctant to share other harder stories with you. And then follow and draw out what's important as you listen to the person. Love naturally moves to what is important in someone's story and follows up. With the bee story, we could ask, and how are you doing now? Are the stings still still bothering you? When we care about someone, we're alerted by what is most troubling in what they're saying, what's most exciting, most anticipated, most desired. We listen even more carefully when strong emotions like anger, fear, shame, sadness, and grief are evident. We might notice word pictures, terms like weighed down, drowning, 
darkness alone, walking on air, those will tell you a lot about where the person is. Now, we're going to move on, uh, but lest you get intimidated by this, because it is in, can be intimidating to picture yourself talking to somebody and they're, then you've gotten deeper in relationship and they've come to trust you and, and now they're saying things like, you know, I'm just beaten down and I, I don't feel like I can go on. And now you're going, oh man, what do I do? I mean, I do love this person, but I don't know if I want to get there because I don't know what to do when I do get there. You know, I'm no professional. How do I help somebody? So it's maybe better to just stay superficial and never get there. Well, I would recommend to you that you do something that I've had to do for years, years. As you talk to people, as you counsel with people, and sometimes as it gets deeper, the issues going on in their lives are deeper and harder. And you've got to resolve from the outset that you're not the fixer. You've got to resolve that you're not the fixer. Jesus is the fixer. And that's not just, that's not punting. That's just the truth. Uh, because if I have suffer from the illusion that I'm the fixer, I'm going to be greatly disappointed. I'm going to be weighed down myself so that I'm not able to help it at all. And that's the case with all of us. That's the case with me. That's the case with you too. That we're not the fixers. Jesus is the fixer. And what we're doing is in a loving relationship pointing them to Jesus using all of the means of grace that he puts at our disposal. And thankfully, he gives us a number of those, each other, his spirit, his word, <clears throat> our experiences, a number of means of grace to speak into that person's life. But ultimately, God is the one who must and God is the one who can, if he so chooses, fix what's going on. Now, if you're listening to a longer story and want to be sure you understand features, then try to Identify an event from that story in one episode that summarized significant things in your friend's life. Can you identify turning points, the most influential people involved, where the past has left an imprint on this person? That'll let you know if you've really been listening and getting it. And follow up when you notice these kinds of things. It might be a short comment that you might say to them, you really love your dad. Or it could probe. That move in seventh grade seemed to be a huge change for you. You know, let me stop there. A move in seventh grade? Yeah. You know, you, you got people who moved, their family moved, or they moved schools, and they moved to a school, and they were treated horribly. And from seventh grade through twelfth grade, they were a pariah, and they didn't have any friends, and it's affected them into adulthood. Yeah. So that move in seventh grade seemed to have been a huge change for you. Or could you say more about your grandmother? She seemed to be really important in your story. Or do you notice any regrets? Anything your friend would want to do over? Scripture certainly concerned with guilt, both the causes of guilt and the cure. And guilt tends to strangle spiritual growth. So we follow up on that when we get the slightest whiff of guilt. When you don't know what's important in someone's story, ask, what's most meaningful to you about this? What's the hardest part of this problem for you? All those questions serve as a reminder that the stories of those you love are interesting and important to you. So we listen for clues, draw people out, and partner in both their joys and their burdens. And you have compassion then on them in two areas. And this is how we'll conclude.
One is in the area of trouble, middle of page 26. And then the other one is in the matter of sin, their own sin. So you've got these two categories of trouble for people. You've got suffering and you've got sin. Suffering where they are simply uh, being weighed down by the difficulties of living in a fallen world. They haven't done anything in particular to cause this thing, but they just live in a fallen world. And, and a diagnosis has happened or a job loss has happened or any number of things has happened to them. So there's suffering. But then there's also sin. And in both, we need to have compassion. Have compassion during trouble. So as a, a summary of what we've looked at, we move toward others, we greet them, we have short but meaningful conversations, gradually discover what's important to them, begin to pray for them. We see the good, we like them, we enjoy them, we have longer conversations, we continue to pray for them. Now those ordinary steps are reminders of how to be a friend rather than profound insights about helping. We all can do them. They're easy and ordinary. The risk is that the that that very ordinariness might cause us to judge them as second-rate ways to care for somebody. But the truth is that following these steps is powerful enough to reach into our souls. When people have practiced just one or two of these on us, they've left their mark. That's because every step has the imprint of Jesus, so you can be sure that each one will be fruitful. And then relationships can naturally progress. When you follow what's important to someone, the path will take you to the primary struggles of life, the two I just mentioned, suffering and sin. Suffering is the trouble that comes at us. Sin is the trouble that comes out of us. So we're both trouble. Suffering comes at us. And sin comes out of us. So we're going to look at trouble first, the, the, or the, uh, the trouble that comes at us first, because we typically talk about our hardships with each other before we talk about our sin. Do you see that? When someone speaks to us of their pain, we should answer with a compassionate response. That means we love those who suffer to the point that we're affected, our affections. We are affected by their hardships. In a sense, compassion is enjoyment's compassion. Ah, Read that again. Compassion is enjoyment's companion. So you're learning to enjoy the person by virtue of what we talked about last week, seeing the good in them. And then the more you enjoy the person, the more compassionate you can be when they tell you about their difficulties. We enjoy the good things in someone and have compassion during the hard things. So speak to communicate compassion. I'm so sorry. This is hard and painful. It tears away at me to hear about this. And seek to remember what's going on with them from time to time and even annually, like anniversaries. If you can do that, I remember that this is the time where that thing happened or you lost that loved one because that date, that following year, is going to be very important to that person. Now, here's some things not to say. Well, it could be worse. Well, see, for them, it it doesn't seem that way in that moment, right? It it probably undoubtedly could be worse. (laughs) Or to ask, what is God teaching you in this? Or God will work this together for good. Consider a few possible problems with these. Such responses circumvent compassion. Are you going to have compassion if someone's being taught a lesson? Not likely. Such responses tend to be condescending, as in, I wonder when you're finally going to get it. Such responses suggest that suffering is a solvable riddle. God has something specific in mind, and we've got to guess what it is. So welcome to this cosmic game of 20 questions. 
And you better get the answer right soon, otherwise the suffering is going to keep going. Such responses suggest that we've done something to unleash the suffering, or they undercut God's call to all suffering people, which is really this, trust me. In our attempts to help, we can overinterpret suffering. We search for clues to God's ways as if suffering were a scavenger hunt. Get to the end with the right answers, God will take away the pain. Meanwhile, the quest for answers is misguided from the start. It's going to end badly. Suffering is not an intellectual matter that needs answers. It's highly personal. Can I trust God? Does God hear? Suffering is a relational matter, and it is a time to speak honestly to the Lord and remember that the fullest revelation he gives of himself is through Jesus Christ, the suffering servant. Only when we look to Jesus can we know that God's love and our suffering can coexist. Or you don't say, you know, if you need anything, please call me. Specifically offer to do something rather than just the the generic. Now, I have to go quickly in our final couple of minutes. But if you look at page 28, just above where it says our theology shapes our compassion, humility asks, what can I do today that would help you? Then it might take a few suggestions so the person doesn't flounder and wonder if you mean it. Can I watch the kids today? Do you need a ride to your treatment? That's being more specific than let me know if you need anything. And our theology shapes the way we we show compassion. And I'm going to encourage you. That's actually some very good stuff, but you're going to have to read it on your own. All right. So go to page 29. And being compassionate to someone as they go through their hardships then gives you a basis for helping that person deal with their sin. And that's what the bottom of page 29 is. Compassion provides a basis for dealing with sin. When we talk to someone about his or her sins, it is indeed risky. What we hope to do is minimize the relational risks through love and wisdom. As a general rule, we want to see the good in others and their hard circumstances before the bad. That seems wise, and it also fits the style of the Apostle Paul's letters that we saw last week. We already talked about seeing the good. Have you ever pointed out the facets of the character of God you see in someone? We tend to be slow to do that. And if we're considering how to talk to somebody about sin, those good words are even less likely to come up. You might be wise to postpone any talk about sin until you've spoken words that build up. But then here's the last couple lines. Be careful, though. Most of us don't need justification to postpone a conversation about sinful actions or attitudes. You see the be careful part? If you're not careful, you will always just stay in the one category of always just enjoying, finding good things, telling the person how good they are, enjoying your time with them, and you never do get to helping them with their sin problems. So that's why the be careful piece here, and this is part of what I was saying to you last week, if you remember, if you were here last week, I said some of us enjoy being the non-custodial parent. Do you remember that? The non-custodial parent's the fun parent. That's the parent who has the kids just every other weekend. And they take them to an amusement park and get them ice cream, and they don't discipline them. They just have a great time. Now, let me add to the non-custodial parent, the grandparent. Grandparents are all like non-custodial parents, right? When you go to grandma and grandpa's, there's a bunch of things, many of them bad, going on. One is, this grandparent now has money. Because they're not spending it on you anymore. And nobody lives with them anymore. 
So now they have extra money to give to your kids. So this person who was a miser your entire life is now the most generous and fun person in the world. So the kids love going to grandma and grandpa's because it's just a, it's a party at grandma and grandpa's. And grandma and grandpa, who would beat you to death, would never scold their grandchildren. That's all left to you. So you're the bad person. And the grandparents, it's all a great time. Now, being somewhat facetious, but you can see that that happens. But the non-custodial kind of grandparent approach is an approach that we can take with each other. Hey, I'm just the person who takes you out for coffee, has a good chat. We just enjoy each other's company. You know, uh, and I never do get to the real issues that have been plaguing you in your spiritual walk for years. So be careful because none of us needs, none of us needs an excuse to get away from that. We all want to get away from that. But the truth is, if we really love the person, love covers a multitude of sins, says James 5, 19 and 20. But it goes on to say that he who rescues a wanderer from the error of his way will save him. Okay, Save him, rescue him, deliver him from whatever difficulty goes down that road. So love sometimes shows up that way. Sometimes we should speak sooner about sin rather than later. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to spend these weeks looking at what you tell us about our call by you to one another. Thank you for your church, which is the people that you have called out of the world and to yourself and to one another. Thank you for allowing us the privilege of being a part of your church. Then help us, Lord, to see that that privilege means sharpening each other in our relationships, getting to know each other, creating a basis, a foundation where the compassion and the love of Jesus can flow from one to the other. And then on that basis, that we're able to deal with one another's sin problems, our spiritual problems, so that we can move forward in our spiritual walk and become more like Jesus. Help us, we ask you, Lord, to put these principles in place in the body dynamic of CBC. We ask you to go with us this week as we serve you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.